serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Well, I'm running on a spiritual high uh, after the program early this morning. And we're going to continue now uh, with the big book. And we're at chapter 3, more about alcoholism and Jerry V. tempted to stand on the chair so I can reach the microphone. I'm Jerry and I'm an alcoholic. I was taught to say that, not for your benefit, but for mine. I had difficulty for a long time remembering and knowing that I was an alcoholic. And they pointed out to me that I was probably a third chapter alcoholic. And I said, I didn't understand that. And he said, why don't you read it? And I tried reading that and I found out that I was reading the same page over and over and over again because by the time I hit the bottom I had forgotten the first sentence. So it's with a great deal of pleasure that somebody asked me to come up here and talk this morning. The only thing I know how to do is bring my message and when I was very early on in the program they taught me that that when I'm tapped to speak somebody out there is supposed to hear my message and everybody else gets a chance to just listen in. Um, if you're out there, I wish you'd pay attention. The, uh, <laughs> so I get the chance to read the third chapter. No, that's the... Um, they told me I shouldn't start with... Uh, um, anything too serious that it should be uh, something light and I think we all learn from stories and I just checked it out with Harry and he said it was all right to tell the story uh, <laughs> if it's not good it's his fault the uh, the kids were up in the attic and they were digging through all of the old paraphernalia that grandma and grandpa had and they came upon a diary of grandfathers and uh, he'd passed away some time before and it was fascinating to read what grandpa had put in his diary about the old days and how they did things and how they lived and what went on and uh, it went through and he had lived to a reasonably ripe old age and they came to his 60th birthday and it was rather surprising but they read in there here I am 60 years on this earth I've lived a good life. It's my birthday. I awoke this morning with an erection and I tried to bend it and it wouldn't bend. I'm still a man. And it fascinated them. And they went through to the 65th birthday and it said, by golly, I can collect Social Security now. I'm 65. It's my birthday today. And again, I awoke with an erection and it wouldn't bend. I'm still a man. They flipped through quickly to his 70th birthday just before he died. And there it was. I'm a septuagenarian. 70 years I've lived on this earth and this morning, again, it's my birthday and I awoke with an erection. I tried to bend it and it bent. I'm getting stronger. <laughs>
I don't know if it's true, but the longer I'm around this program, the stronger I get, really. <laughs> Chapter 3 really spoke to me very, very well. And it starts with that terrible business of saying that deep down we have to come to the conclusion that we're licked by alcohol. I fought the battle, whatever it was, I fought the battle. I had to prove, I tried to figure out a way around anything, and they tell me, everybody else has come into this program, did exactly the same thing. My, my, whole, my whole life was geared toward trying to beat the system. But I had no argument with the alcohol, I just drank a lot, and they tell me that a lot of other folks <coughs> did. It wasn't until I tried to get into this fellowship that I ever had an argument with booze. And for, a, it was only two years in that respect. I just drank an awful lot. But in two years during the argument, that, that sentence came home clear and hard. Therefore, it is not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. And I always thought that I really drank like other people. And it wasn't until I was in this program that I looked around and the people I drank with were all drunks. Uh, I seemed to seek them out. They, uh, they just appeared in my life and would say, come on, Jerry, uh, let's go have a drink. And, uh, and then a week later, I'd come back to the office and say, gee, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to have that vacation. But uh, that was... I thought I was drinking like everybody else, didn't realize it was abnormal. But when I did come into this program, 1971, they introduced me to it, and uh, uh, I, I was trying to prove to them that I really didn't have this crazy disease. Someday he will control and enjoy his drinking as the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. And man, that was me. I, I tried to do this, this thing of drinking and being, being uh, a normal person. It was my greatest dream just to be normal. Um, because I was always the little kid. And we were walking out of here a little bit earlier and one of my friends was saying he's on a diet program. You know, and I was too, but I was always trying to gain weight because I was 147 pounds soaking wet. And the, uh, when I started to gain weight, I really thought it was a wonderful thing. I'm not going to go on a diet. I'm just not going to do that, you know. I've always tried to do something in my life to be like other people. And when I found alcohol, I found out I could be like other people. It's that magic potion. And I have to agree with those who said, gee, it, it turned on a special light in my head. And I've always searched for that light again. And uh, sometimes I would think I was just getting to it and was going to turn on again like it did, and then I'd find my bladder was full. And I'd go to the bathroom and it'd be gone. I never did. I'd always drink right past it. And the third chapter said that they did that too. And that they couldn't, uh, they just couldn't live with booze anymore. And that it was the beginning of of sobriety to realize that I couldn't fight that battle. I've been impressed in, in studying the third chapter that it's really the whole process is relapse prevention. Uh, 
Our stories are, are one characterized by repeated vain attempts to drink like other people drink. And it's that, uh, that terrible business of saying, gee, maybe one won't hurt. There's reservation. They told me I was compliant, and uh, I had to look that word up too. And, uh, and that means I'll do what you uh, tell me to do while you're watching me, but when you turn your back, I'm going to go do my thing. Because I know a better way. I know a better way. And I would do that. And I would go to meetings and, and listen to what the people in Alcoholics Anonymous would say to me and, and, and listen to them as best I could. And all the time in my head was that little thing going on in there saying, God, it sounds good, but I know a better way to live. And I would go back out and drink again. And uh, the first meetings I went to was a bunch of old gray-bearded guys. And, uh, and I listened to their stories, and I knew they shouldn't drink anymore. <laughs> but I had a wife, and I had money, and I had prestige, and I did have a job, and I had a house, and I had a, my self-respect. And it just took two years to drink that all up, and it was gone. It was really gone. I, I have... When I came to and I was in a hospital, and I'd been in hospitals before, good grief, you know, I had one of those wives that didn't like people who drank. And, uh, and uh, she had a system of taking care of things for me. And uh, she took me into one of those treatment centers and poured me in. And, uh, and I stayed there for a while. And the guy said, you're just, you're an insensitive bore. You really have a very sensitive wife. Uh, you should go home and be more sensitive and don't drink. And it lasted almost 30 days before I started drinking again. And uh, the next time that I went to the hospital, they said I was passive-aggressive. And that passive-aggressive people frequently kill themselves, don't kill yourself. And I thought, that was good advice. <laughs> and, um, and they mentioned that maybe I shouldn't drink. And uh, that lasted almost 45 days. And the next time I was in the hospital, they said, no, you're really obsessive-compulsive. And that's why you drink, and you should do these things, and by the way, don't drink. And that lasted not more than 85 days. Then I became diabetic. Then I became some other thing. And finally, they hauled me off to this AA meeting where they said, no, you're none of those things. You're not obsessive-compulsive. You're not passive-aggressive. You're obnoxious-repulsive. Take the cotton out of your ears and shove it in your mouth. That's relapse prevention. <laughs> and it works, and it works just fine. I didn't believe I was a real alcoholic, and I didn't know what a real alcoholic was. And during those two years, I kind of proved uh, to everybody around me what a real alcoholic is. And uh, that's a guy who will continue to drink in spite of everything or anything and the consequences of that everything and anything. And uh, the wife went, and the car went, and the house went, and the kids went, and the money went, and the job went. And uh, I gotta tell you, you know, when everything's gone, it's easy to give up. It really is. It, and 
I didn't have a place to stay, I didn't have a place to work, I didn't know what I would be doing, and a guy offered a room in his basement down behind the furnace, and I said, I'll take it. And the rest of the group chewed at him and yelled at him and said, don't, you know his track record, this guy is a drunk. And he said, well, I feel sorry for him, and I'll give him a room. They said, at the first mention, he looks like he's going to drink, get rid of him. Kick him out. And it was March, and it was snowing, and I thought, God, i got to do something for a while uh, just to be able to live, because I can't live out under the bridge at this kind of thing. I've underlined a whole flock of stuff in there, and I was going to look back at it and see if there was some of the things that I could talk about in that chapter. One of the most important ones to me was the fact that alongside of my good, sober thinking would run some insane reason for taking the first drink. And that's me. Uh, I was driving home from a meeting, a good meeting. I hated it. Uh, I was told I had to go to it. And it was, it was a meeting of little old ladies who would drink because the May didn't dust properly or something, you know. It was just awful. And, um, and I went and I listened and it was, I couldn't stay sober with them. I didn't understand why they drank. And I was on my way home and I can remember in my head thinking, they said, all I had to do was, was ask for help in the morning and make a decision to not drink that day. And it's 9 o'clock at night, the meeting's over, and I thought, gosh, that makes good sense, because now at 9 o'clock at night, I can make a decision to drink, and tomorrow morning I'll make a decision to not drink. And that was exactly what I did, so I stopped by and picked up two fifths. Uh, I don't remember a lot after that, you know. But that trivial reason to drink, the examples that they give are the guy who's doing his... his uh, Recovery, well, he's not unhappy, he's got a job back, he's selling cars, and he stops by to have a sandwich. I love those, you know. You just have to stop by to have a sandwich in the same place that, uh, that uh, you used to drink. And uh, he, the thought hit him that, gee, if I just put the booze into milk, it won't bother me. And so he was off on another drunk. I've done it, except I don't drink milk. <laughs> it, it's a serious business, but that's how insane we can become, and I was just as insane. I believe that I could go back and, and drink, uh, I could go back and drink uh, some cola in the, in the bar where I used to drink double martinis, and that I could still have, carry on a nice conversation with Helen, and uh, she liked to sell booze because that made money. And uh, when I had cola, she was very obnoxious and rude, you know. And so I ordered a martini and was off on another one right that quick. It was obvious that she was trying to help me. <laughs> getting sober and staying sober, that was our problem. And I don't believe that getting sober is our problem. I've walked in my living room sweating and shaking and dying and getting sober 
only to turn around and do this crazy experiment all over again. And early on in, in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, they dragged me down to uh, southern Indiana where one of the, one of the local uh, successful uh, people came from, and he was back giving his talk. He came from down by Evansville in the hills, and he talked a lot. He went out to uh, California, and they own him out there. But he drives back and forth, or used to, and would talk at the state convention occasionally. And we went to French Lick, Indiana, for the state convention. And his name was Charlie C., and he always said, I'm Charlie C. from Laguna B. And Charlie C. said, gee whiz, it's just a management problem and that uh, I had managed my life, all my life. And I thought, man, this guy knows something I don't, you know. And I listened to him, and I realized that's what I had always done. I'd managed my life. I determined who I was going to marry, where we were going to live, what car we drove, where I was going to work. I made all kinds of really good decisions that were lasting for 15 to 20 minutes most of the time till the next drink came by. And he said, it's just a management problem. It's a matter of turning the management over to somebody else. And he spoke so highly of this turning the, the business over to some new management that we came home and, and I had a shirt made that tells really the story of my life. And I have to tell you, I take my shirt off, my jacket off, <laughs> you can't make a second step until you make the first. And that's the crazy part of it. And that's what this little third chapter is all about, more about alcoholism. We've heard Bill's story, and I loved listening to that, <laughs> seeing all those slides. And, and realizing that Bill W. had just a horrid time trying to get sober. And I heard about, about there is a solution. I always thought there was too. Uh, vermouth and, 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 and pretty soon there wasn't any vermouth and I just had the lemon and the ice and the, and the gin. Until one day I was walking through the emergency room to go to work and one of my colleagues said, my God, you smell like a whole juniper bush. <laughs> and I thought, gee, I'm going to have to switch brands of what I'm drinking, you know. There's just too much of that juniper in there. And uh, uh, then I read in the third, other people did that. They tried to switch the time. I won't drink before five. And I saw my friend's clock, and he had a five at every position. Uh, I'll change people I drink with. So. Instead of being in the high-class bar, we go down to, to uh, the low-class bar. And I'd get just as drunk. And they said, well, switch from, from scotch to beer. And I tried that, and I just wet my pants. <laughs> it's too much fluid for me, you know, to get that much alcohol. I did crazy things. Crazy, crazy. And I read that other people did, too, before me. And I think that's the message that really the, the third chapter had for us, is that if I can identify with the way other people have been trying to get sober, I might get sober. And so I brought the body. I didn't bring the body. They dragged me. 
It wasn't a matter of choice. When I was living in that guy's basement, we come up and have breakfast in the morning and talk about the big book. We'd talk about sobriety. And then somebody would come by and haul me off to a meeting. I had no idea where I was going or what was... I thought you guys spoke a weird language. I didn't understand it at all. And I had to come first just to learn the language. But the guys that I went to see were happy. There had been something different about them. And, and our group has always said we're from Yale and from jail. It's a mixed group. <laughs> and <laughs> it was held in the dormitory of the university there in Lansing, East Lansing. And the, there, we came and went, and some of us were in sort of rather bad disarray. And the Arab that was on the, on the desk looked at Red one day and said, Red, those people that come and go from your apartment, they're dignitaries, aren't they? And he said, yes, they're dignitaries. They certainly are. And then we had a guy come in who just cried. He, he was a very unhappy guy, but he said, where is the sympathy you're supposed to get in this program of Alcoholics Anonymous? And somebody in the group said, you'll find sympathy in the dictionary. It's right between suicide and syphilis. Most of us have tried one. Some of us have tried both. And they don't work either. And so I come from a group called the Dignitary Sympathy Group. And I try to tell people what I believe, because that's what this is all about. I share with you what I believe. And my friend, who's learned, pointed his finger at me and said, now I know what you are. We've known each other for 30 years. I said, what? He said, you're a fundamentalist. And by God, I am. It works. It's just splendid. I wasn't a fundamentalist before. I was trying to find my own way. I was trying to find a way that I could be happy and enjoy booze like I've watched other people enjoy or what I thought they enjoyed. And it didn't work. I kept getting drunk. And they didn't. And I never understood that. I thought those people that would go to parties and they'd have a drink in their hand and walk around all day and converse with other people and they'd set the same glass down half full. They were nuts. <laughs> Absolutely insane. That stuff's a mood altering chemical. And my mood was rotten and so I always tried to alter it somehow. And I drank a lot. And I drank at parties. Sometimes I would not remember what happened at the parties and people would say gee you weren't very nice and I, I couldn't figure out how I'm such a nice guy how could I be different you know I thought I knew what was going on that when I came to this book and it said gee all you have to do is admit well that was splendid but I didn't have a problem and so they said well for you it has to be a 4A program AA ain't enough. And I said, well, what in the world do you mean? Well, it said the first A is awareness. Until you know you've got a problem, you can't do anything about it. And awareness it is. And the second thing is you've got to admit you got it. Well, shoot, I've always been a drunk, so it wasn't any hard deal to say, yeah, I'm an alcoholic, you know. You just change the words a little bit. That's easy. They said the third thing, A, is that you have to accept it. Well, that was kind of a different battle. I've never met anybody uh, with coronary artery disease yet who said, oh boy, have I, I'm lucky I got coronary. No, I didn't want it. 
It certainly wasn't mine. I knew I wasn't responsible for it. I tried every way to duck the diagnosis, and they were able to sit with me quietly and just sit with me until I realized I had the diagnosis and accept it down deep inside. Admit to our innermost selves. I never had an innermost self. You know, there wasn't anything there until I poured alcohol in there. <laughs> you know? Admit to our innermost selves that we have a problem with alcohol. And then it said you got to get off the butt and do some action. I love Geraldine Delaney last year telling us that you can't sit in this program because you won't make footprints in the sands of time if you sit around. All you'll do is make butt prints in the sands of time. And that's, <laughs> God, I understand that. I, it, that's fundamental to me, you see. And so I, I've learned to get up, and I was tapped to come and talk to you guys this morning. Sometimes I go on for hours, so if the time runs up, please let me know. The, uh, there's a little man named Rudy, and he met up with another drunk named Schmidt down in South Chicago. And they were good at what they did. They drank a lot. They weren't successful drunks, but they drank a lot. And they would go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and sit right in the front row and listen to the speaker. And they would applaud as loud as they could when it was done and run right up to him, shake his hand and say, what a wonderful message you've got. It has really inspired me, but we haven't eaten in three days. Have you got any money you could let us have so we could buy some food? And of course, the poor idiot has just finished it. They knew what they were doing. They'd con him right out of his eye teeth. He'd give him a few bucks, and they'd go out and buy a bottle, and then head for the park and drink some more. Well, Schmidt got a terrible cold and bronchitis, and he couldn't go. He was sick. He was, he, I'm going to stay here leaning against the bench. You go. You know the story, Rudy. You know what to do. You know how to do it. You go and listen, and you've got to bring some money back for us because we need some booze. And Rudy went, and he listened, and he jumped right up there at the end, and he went to the man. He said, what a wonderful message you've got. You've really inspired me. I don't think that I'm going to have to drink now for a while, but I'm hungry, and my friend's in the park, and he's very sick, and we need money for medicine and food. And the, the speaker had more smarts than Rudy. And he said, you know, you're probably right. I understand that. But you need more than money. And I've got something for you that can get you all the riches in the world that you've ever wanted. And Rudy's ears perked up because he had nothing, you know. Somebody else's shoes, clothes, and what have you. And, and, and he said, yes. He said, I've got this little 12-step card. He said, if you read that and do what it tells you to do, you'll have riches beyond belief. Well, Rudy was Hungarian. He couldn't read a blessed word of English. But he took the card. It was magic. And he went out to see Rudy and heard Schmidt. Schmidt looked at that and he said, you dumb, and used some other expertise. And um, uh, he said, that's just a 12-step card from the crazy drunks. He said, that's not going to get us a bottle of booze. He said, well, the man said it was magic. It would get me what I wanted. And Rudy took it back. And he went to his brother over in South Chicago who ran a bookstore. And his brother looked at the card, 
and listen to Rudy's story that this would get him all the riches in the world that he ever wanted. And his brother looked at it and Rudy said, read it to me, read it to me. And he said, no, it won't get what you want if I read it to you. But I quit working here at 9.30 at night. Now, if you'll come over here, I'll teach you how to read and when you can read it, you can get the riches. And Rudy went every night for six months. And at the end of six months, he could read it. And at the end of six months, he realized he was six months sober. Schmidt died drunk. Rudy died sober. There's something there. This guy came into my life when I didn't really want him to. I was sitting in the back seat of a car being driven because I didn't have a car. And I was a big shot doctor. And the guy driving the car, who's my sponsor, and this other fellow were talking. And Nick said, is he in the program? Didn't even look at me. Is he in the program? And my sponsor said, he's going to be. <laughs> and I went and I listened to Nick talk. And Nick had a promise for me that I can pass on to you guys. And it's a promise that I've hung on to since the time I've come into this program. And he said, I only want to talk to you people out there who have contemplated suicide. And my ears perked up. I thought maybe you knew a way that wouldn't hurt. <laughs> I'm a coward. <laughs> Nick said, if you really want to commit suicide, you take this little card into the quiet of your mind for 15 minutes a day. That's all. Do what it tells you to do, not what you read in this big book, certainly not what a sponsor tells you, not what you hear in me. Read the card and do what it tells you to do. And there will come a day in your life when you're satisfied with you. And on that day, you'll have put to sleep those qualities in you that make suicide necessary. I've hung on to that promise. I've hung on to it. It's here. I don't have to commit suicide. And that's the joy of the program. And that's the joy of this third chapter in the book because it talks about me. It tells me about me and why I always had to go back to drinking booze again. And that I will use the most trivial excuse, simple one, to do that desperate experiment of the first drink. What a wonderful phrase, the desperate experiment of the first drink, because that's what I would do repeatedly. One won't hurt, and by God, one never did. I was plugged in, though. One didn't hurt you, so, you know, a case won't either. Uh, and it, it's, that's the way I think, and I've met so many other folks who think the same way. Sobriety is such a wonderful experience. It's an experiential thing if there ever was one. And I just kind of live one day at a time, getting up in the morning, doing just like you guys do. Ask the good Lord for guidance and direction. Never have asked him for help. I learned that long ago. It never says on this card, hey, uh, get somebody to go work for you. Not any place. Not even in the white lines, in between the black lines does it say that. Ask what your directions are supposed to be. And then ask for strength to do it. And I've been taught also to pray for, for patience and to slow down because when I'm in a hurry, I don't have time for you. 
that. I've realized that today. Many times I get in a hurry and realize I goofed. They promised me I could stay sober forever in this program, but with three talks every day. Get up in the morning and talk to God. I remember those old days, good God, it's morning, you know. And now we say good morning, God. It's different. It's different. But I ask him for guidance and direction and not to be in a big hurry. And the second talk is to let him talk to me. Well, I've had those hallucinations, and I've listened to my air conditioner talk to me. He played great music when I was drinking. And they said, no, that's not what it is. If you want God to talk to you, why don't you read his words? Read something out of this every day. I said, well, I can get through one page, but I can't remember it. And they said, that'll come back. If you just be patient, it'll come back. And sorry, sure enough. So every day I read a little bit out of there, the 12 and 12. I said, what's the third talk? They said, share it with somebody else who wants to walk this quiet way that we walk. I don't like to walk a quiet way. <laughs> I, I tell stories. I like to be the center of attraction. I like to do all these things. I'm loud. I'm all kind walk that quiet way. Well, I've learned that when I do this, and I'm sharing with some other person, especially a wet drunk, you know, that we really do walk the quiet way. We've got something to give today. Now, I made it up to 40 minutes, and I guess that's about the best I'm going to do. Um, I want to thank you for the opportunity to come up here and to serve as best I can. Thanks a lot.